Well, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you want to open your Bibles there. As you're making your way there, just by way of introduction, it was the uh, summer of 2002, um, and uh, my, uh, my habit at the time, because I, I had a boat, it wasn't a grand and glorious boat, it was an 18-foot boat, four-cylinder motor, but it was enough to get us to Catalina, um, and we would go over there every chance we got. People thought I was crazy to take a little boat over there. People take sea-doos over to Catalina, okay? I know I've done it. So, um, <laughs> it's fun. Um, but, uh, but at the time, I had a boat, and we went over to Catalina. It was just one of many dozens of trips that we took. My, my son and I going on this trip, a, f- a friend of ours and one of my, my son's friends on this trip. And, um, you know, the trick is when you go over, especially in a small boat, you know, the trick is you go over really early in the morning, first light. Uh, it's the smoothest, it's the calmest, and, and all. And, um, you know, routinely you can't see the island because, you know, it's shrouded in fog often. But, you know, you set your compass heading there and you just aim for the middle of the island and that way, you know, you're, you're good. Um, and then when it comes into sight, you know, you correct the course, go a little bit south, go into Avalon. And, and also, so we're heading across, we go over, we have a good time. And we stayed a little later than we should have. Uh, while we were over there. And it's kind of tricky because, you know, you'll get over there and you, you need to, to top off your gas tank when you get there. Um, so, you know, and, and with the boat and a four-cylinder motor, I mean, we probably would have enough gas to get back. You know, probably no problem. But, you know, just to be safe, you top it off. But the gas stations over there, they're not always open by the... Sometimes the schedules change. Sometimes this gas station's closed. You have to go down to the isthmus and, and so on. Well, we stayed late. And... Uh, the, 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 the deal is with the, with the channel there, when you stay late in the afternoon, <clears throat> the swells pick up. And so you've got a little tiny boat, and you've got swells, they don't mix, you know, and it turns into white caps, and it's just not advisable to wait till much later. So by 12, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, you've got to be on your way back. So we stayed late, and then I went to the fuel dock, and the fuel dock was closed for an hour. And I'm like, oh, I mean, it's going to take me that long to go down to the Isthmus to get gas anyway. I look at my gas gauge. I'm like, yeah, we're probably okay. <laughs> so we start heading back across. Well, it, was, it wasn't quite Gilligan's Island, but it was really big, you know. And we're, so we're, you, know, we're, you have to cover that much more ground when you're going up and over these swells. And we're getting sort of tossed around and, and all. And, uh, and the fog rolls in. And again, it's not a big deal. You're going to the mainland. I mean, you can't miss the mainland. You stay on a compass heading. You know, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna wind up on land somewhere, right? But because, uh, because I hadn't topped off the fuel tank, and because the seas were rougher and so we're consuming more gas going, well, pretty soon I'm looking at the gas gauge and it's fluttering close to empty. And we're in the fog. I can't see land anywhere. Now, we're going along, and and my son and his friend are having a ball in the bow of the boat. They're just jumping up and down with every swell. They'd catch air, and ah, this is great. I'm I'm living my own private hell all by myself. (laughs) But my son and his his friend, they're just having a ball pretty soon. I mean, I, I, I I look over at the guy that's with me. And I just make eye contact with him. My eye contact says, we are in deep weeds, man. And he looks over at me, and I look down at the gas gauge. I don't want to tip my son off. And he sees the gas gauge, and now he's freaking out. I'm good. Somebody else is freaking out with me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, by God's grace, the lighthouse came into sight. We made, you know, we made it. I mean, on fumes, we made it. But we made it. And I'm like, thank you, 
Lord. Now, the story serves as a metaphor. And the metaphor is this, that I was freaking out because I couldn't see. I'm in the fog, I'm, uh, I'm low on fuel, I have no idea where I'm at, and I can't see. Now, meanwhile, my, my son, he couldn't see either, but he was having the time of his life. Well, what's the difference? Because my son trusted in his father. You see, he riding in, in, in the bow of the boat, even though he couldn't see, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't living by sight, he was living by faith. He had faith in his dad, that his dad's going to get him where he needed to go. Poor kid. <laughs> but he had faith in his father, right? And, and, and so that's the, that's the idea. You know, the Apostle Paul, he said this. He says, for we live by believing and not by seeing. We live by faith and not by sight. And that's the idea of the Christian life, right? The, the, the Christian life <clears throat> is all about living a life by faith, trusting, following in the Lord. But that's not always how we live, is it? No, that's, that's not all we live at all because a lot of times we are in the fog and we doubt God. We, we're freaking out. We're, we're doubting. And, and I'm, I'm comforted when you look in the, the scriptures, even Jesus' own disciples doubted. Who comes to mind? Thomas, John chapter 20, I think it's John chapter 20, there they are, Jesus appears to his disciples after he's risen from the dead, and, and they're all there seeing him, and Thomas wasn't around, and so Thomas comes back, and they're all telling him, hey, Jesus was here, and he's like, you guys are high, man, what are you talking about? Jesus was here kind of thing, and they're like, he was here, I'm telling you, and he says, look, unless I stick my fingers in the print of his nails, in his hands, and, and stick my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. And of course, the Lord shows up and has him do that. And he says, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who believe and haven't seen, you know. And, and so the, the issue here is, man, like Thomas, we have a tendency to trust in our flesh, don't we? To trust in what we can see. And not, not so much to, to, to walk by faith. Well, that's the big idea of 1 Samuel chapter 8. The big idea of chapter 8 is, is all about trusting in the flesh rather than trusting in the Lord. <clears throat> For Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, Now it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijai. And they were judges in Beersheba. It tells us there in verse 3, But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and they perverted uh, justice. Here, chapter 8, some 40 years have elapsed between where we left off in chapter 7 and now in chapter 8. And during that time, Samuel served as a judge. He made his rounds in a circuit between Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah. Um, and along the way, we find out he raised two sons. Joel, which the name means Jehovah is God, and, and Abijah, which means Jehovah is my father. Now, now that, that name, Jehovah, it means the existing one. It, it means uh, the one who has always been. It means the one who is steadfast. It means the one who is immovable, constant, trustworthy, reliable. 
And so, so Samuel names his, his sons this, hey, listen, the immovable, constant, trustworthy, reliable, steadfast, always there God, he's the one that's God. That's his firstborn's name. His secondborn, the immovable, constant, steadfast, the one that's always there, that God is my father. This is the name of his two sons. And Samuel, it seems, tries to raise his sons in, in the way of the Lord. How do we know that? Well, uh, there's three indicators to this in the verses that we've just read. First of all, the names that he gave to his children indicate that he tried to raise them in the knowledge and the image and the admonition of the Lord. <clears throat> Verse 3 says that uh, they did not walk in his ways. And by implication, what that means is that Samuel taught them his ways by precept and by example. But they, they did not follow. It, it, again, the way that it's worded, it, it, the implication is, is that Samuel taught them what they should do. It wasn't that he was neglectful. Also, in verse 3, it says that they turned aside. They turned aside, which that means, again, by implication, <clears throat> that Samuel, in the instruction of his children, that he, he told them that the way that they should go, that, that he directed them to the right course, but they turned aside. Now, we can only speculate as to why his children turned aside. And, and there's, there's, there's a lot that, you know, we can sort of go, okay, what do we see here? What are some clues? What perhaps were some of the reasons that his sons turned aside? One of the reasons that, that we could maybe guess and go, hey, I wonder if they turned aside because of, well, was maybe he was gone too much. I mean, we see that, you know, every year he was on this circuit going around to all these different towns and so on. And, and so maybe he, he wasn't there with his kids as much as he should have been. Several of the guys here, they, they've, they've read through the book Point Man. Uh, uh, Tom Walter, one of our deacons, this is his favorite book. He loves to give it out to God. How many of you guys have received that book from Tom Walter? See, look at this. That's his legacy right there. So Steve Farrar wrote this book. I recommend it, guys. It's a great book. And uh, <clears throat> he talks about, in his book, he talks about um, this difference between quality time and quantity time. And in the talking of quality time versus quantity time, he says, you know, the idea that, hey, look, if you can't spend quantity time with your kids, that you just make sure that the time you've got is quality. He goes, that's a great idea. The problem is you, you never really know when quality time is going to show up. And quality time normally shows up in the context of quantity time. And it's in the most random times where you just happen to be there <clears throat> with your kids that they'll open up a window to their heart. I mean, I mean, it could be painting a fence. It could be driving them somewhere, whatever. And all of a sudden, they open up this window to their heart. And if you're not paying attention, the opportunity is missed. But if you're paying attention, when they open up those windows, man, that's a great opportunity to instruct them in the, in the way of the Lord and to really mentor your children. And, and so, you know, his point is, look... We're all limited as dads. Clearly, we're busy, but we, we, we can't just have this notion of, well, I'm, I'm going to, you know, buy into, oh, I've got these few quality time moments. No, you need to spend as much time with your kids as you can kind of deal is, is his point. So maybe that's the issue with Samuel. Maybe he was, he was just gone too much. He didn't spend enough, enough time with his kids. Maybe Samuel spoiled his sons like Eli did before him. You know, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, remember that in the early chapters of, of, of this very book, where Eli, it says, spoiled his sons. Now, this, the text doesn't seem to suggest that about Samuel, but, but we tend to parent like our parents did, don't we? 
And so, you know, since Samuel was raised by Eli, maybe he picked up on, you know, this favoring of the kids and, and not uh, mentoring them the way that they should. Um, and uh, we don't know. Again, it's speculation. Uh, something for us to kind of take a walk with because, you know, your parenting, the way you parent your children, uh, it will either be instinctual or it will be intentional. And, and a lot of us, we have bad instincts just because we're, we're sinners, um, but a lot of us, too, have bad instincts because we've had bad modeling. And, and so this is something to, to pay attention to. Maybe, maybe that's the deal. Maybe because Samuel had, had bad modeling from Eli, maybe he favored his sons the way Eli favored his. Again, it's speculation. We have no way of knowing that. And the text doesn't seem to indicate that, but maybe that's a possibility. Or, you know, here's a third possibility. Maybe despite his best efforts, his kids just went south. I mean, that happens. You have, you have kids that are born, spiritually speaking, with a silver spoon in their mouth, and you can do everything you can to raise up that child into, in, in the way that he should go. And the promise is when, he was old, when he's old, he'll not depart from it. And that's a general truism, but that's not an absolute. I mean, they still remain as independent moral agents. They have a free will, just as we all do. And, and, and so this can happen. I mean, the person that comes to mind is Samson. In the book of Judges, I mean, here's a guy, spiritually speaking, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, raised to know the Lord, and yet Scripture records, first words out of his mouth, I saw a woman. <laughs> Very next words out of, his, out of his mouth, bring her to me. I mean, you know, and so here's a guy, and of course, women were his downfall, right? And so you, that could be the case as well. The fact is, we don't know. It's pure speculation. Why did this guy's children go south? We don't know. But the fact is, they, they did go south. They did walk away from the Lord. They were corrupt. Verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Look, you are old, and you're, <laughs> how's that for a compliment? You're old, <clears throat> and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Now, if you're with us last week, you, you, you'll recall Samuel was the guy who stepped up and who challenged the nation of Israel. They're, they're knee-deep in sin. And this is the guy who stepped up and challenged them. And, and, and he called them to repentance. And, and when they came to repentance, you know, what he erected was this Ebenezer stone, this stone of help. That's what Ebenezer means. And, and the, the, the idea of this memorial is that, hey, the Lord helped us. And he's, he's like, look, you repented, the Lord helped you. We're going to establish this memorial stone, this, this, this stone of Ebenezer. The Lord is my help. And, and we do this to, to remember that this is where the Lord helped us. And we saw last week, this wasn't the first time that they had erected an Ebenezer stone. In fact, you go back to chapter 4, and you see what happened in chapter 4 was Israel there had, had in a small skirmish with their enemies, the Philistines, they'd, had, they'd suffered a minor defeat. And so they, they assemble, they're gathered by an Ebenezer stone, one that represents the previous time that God had helped them. And, uh, and so they're like, all right, here we do. You know, we're gathered together. What are we going to do? Hey, let's go get the ark. It'll save us kind of deal. And, uh, and so there they are. They're rallying together to place a former victory. But what they forgot was that their former victory came just so long as they placed their faith in the Lord. And see, they weren't placing their faith in the Lord. They had stopped long ago placing their faith in the Lord. 
They're, they're placing their faith in false gods, in false idols, in empty shell of religion. And so what God said when they were gathered in chapter 4, at that, at right next to you know, the, the former Ebenezer stone, the former place of God's help, God's like, I, I ain't helping you today. I helped you then. But I am not helping you today because you're trusting in idols. You're trusting in yourselves. You're trusting in, you know, you're looking at the ark like it's a rabbit's foot, like it's a lucky charm, you know, and, and it's not about trusting in me. And so I'm helping you with this battle. And so they were miserably defeated. The ark was, you know, taken capture and so on. And um, it left Israel lamenting. And that's where we found him in chapter 7. Samuel comes along. They're lamenting. They're, they're totally living a defeated life. And Samuel comes up and he, and, and he challenges them to repent. And when they did, the Lord helped again. Uh, this is consistently the Lord's character with us. When we repent, when we fall on him, when we trust in him, that's when the Lord's going to help us. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, the Lord speaking, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. By the way, just as an aside, this needs to be our cry, our heart, our prayer. Our nation is going to hell in a handbasket, man. We need revival. And it starts with every single one of us, you know? So this is exactly what the Israelites did last, last week, chapter 7. And, and, and if you were here, you saw they returned to the Lord. They rejected false gods and idols. They readied their hearts for God and rendered service to Him alone. And toward that end, they rallied together and they were watchful in prayer. And in so doing, they readied for the enemy attack because every time we decide that we're going to repent and seek the Lord, the enemy is not going to take it sitting down. And so they readied themselves for this attack. And the result was that they received victory and they received restoration. And so Samuel erected another Ebenezer, another stone of help. And that's where we left things last week. But there's just one problem. They didn't remember they didn't remember. And, and here we are once again now in chapter 8. We're in this place where the Israelites are turning from God and they're placing their faith, faith elsewhere. They want to walk by sight. They don't want to walk by faith. First point today, if you want to write it down, the Israelites placed their faith in the flesh. The Israelites placed their faith in the flesh. And it all goes back to this issue of walking by sight and not walking by faith. They're asking for a king. It's just the latest in a long list of walking by sight. They were walking by sight when they placed their faith in idols. They were walking by sight when they placed their faith in a religious system. And they said, oh, the ark, get it. It will save us. They, They wanted to walk by sight, you know, now when they're saying, hey, we need a king. Jeremiah 17, 5 says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. We can have a tendency to trust in men, to place all of our hope in men. You know, the, the, it's this politician that's going to save us. Or it, it's this new leader of our, my company, that's who's going to save us. Or, you know, hey, it, it, if, if, I, if I can just marry this man, he's going to save me, you know, kind of thing. 
And, and what you do is you look at this, and it's interesting. You can trace the seeds of this back. I mean, here this, the Israelites are. You, you see them give us a king. They're trusting in man, and you, you, you trace it back. And you, you can trace it back to chapter 7. And what we read there, Samuel making his rounds, and he's doing it every year. And what happened? Well, it seems to me that the people began to look to Samuel instead of looking to God. That's what was going on. I mean, he called them to repentance and to seek the Lord, but pretty soon what happened is the people started looking to Samuel. And, and so, you know, the, the, the issue is now, as it turns out, they're starting to freak out because, well, as it turns out, Samuel's not God, right? And so now they look at Samuel, they're like, dude, you're getting old. And, and so, like, we're placing our trust in you, and, and you got to, you know, your shelf life ain't that good anymore, man. And so, where's, now, where's our hope going to be? Well, let's look at his kids. Well, yeah, there's not a lot to see there. Not a lot of promise with your boys, man. So, we can't trust you. We can't trust those, those crooked kids of yours. So, so, what do we need? Well, we need a king, just like all the other nations around us. What's wrong with that? They have a king. That's what's wrong with that. They have a king. And they're supposed to be looking to the Lord as their king. Turn to Acts chapter 14 real quick. We'll pick it up in verse 8. The Apostle Paul's here um, on a missionary journey, and he's in Lystra. It says there in verse 8, Acts chapter 14, beginning verse 8, And in Lystra, a certain man, without strength in his feet, was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who'd never walked. And this man heard Paul speaking. And Paul, observing him intently, and seeing that he had no faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. How cool would that be? And... He leaped and walked. And now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. This goes back to their, their folklore, and in their folklore basically the... The people in Lystra had, you know, had this story that was passed down from generation to generation that the, the gods showed up in human form and nobody paid them any mind except for one little old woman. And so she was the only one that these gods left alive. They killed everyone else. This was their folklore. And so here they're, they're going, here they are. It's come true. We're looking at these guys. Here's this thing that they're doing. Verse 13, and then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes, and they ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all the things 
that are in them. Now jump down to verse 18, and it says, And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitude from sacrificing to them. And then in verse 9, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. These guys came up. They hated Paul, hated his ministry. So they come up, and they start whispering among these people. Now these people, they were revering Paul and Barnabas, thought they were gods. Paul and Barnabas are like, don't worship us as gods. We're just men like you. You, you, need, you need to worship the true and the living God. You don't need to worship us. Well, these guys come up. Now they pile on and they start, you know, coercing them to say, you know, these guys are horrible and all. And, uh, and having persuaded the multitudes, we read in verse 9, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, the city supposing him to be dead. And some speculate that when, you know... Uh, uh, Paul, you know, he, when he talked about being caught up into the third heaven, that it, it happened here. You know, that, that this is where he actually maybe did die. But they, they, they stoned him and they drug him out, supposing him uh, to be dead. And, um, and, and here's the issue. When we place our faith in the flesh, our flesh is always going to let us down. If we place our faith in a man, that man is always going to let you down. Your pastor isn't God. You guys are like, duh, duh, we figured that out. But your pastor isn't God. Your spouse isn't God. Your father isn't God. They're not. I mean, one of the biggest testimonies that we have in our marriage is Brenda, when we got married, she had me so high up on a pedestal that when I inevitably fell off that pedestal, it rocked her world. And she had to come to terms with the fact that, you know what, Ted, Ted isn't God. And, and so you, you, we have to understand that, look, anytime we place our faith in the flesh, we're going to be disappointed. And it's crazy to me as I read this story of, of Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 14. Here you got people that are worshiping Paul as God in one moment, and then they're ready to kill him in the next and that's what happens, isn't it? We worship somebody and then they inevitably fall off that, that pedestal and now we, we, we want to kill them. And, and so the thing is, we, we got to understand, man, it's our, the tendency of our flesh to want to trust in men. And the Lord wants us to trust in him. Now, now back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, it's exactly what's going on with Samuel. The people, uh, they, they, they once trusted in Samuel, now they're turning on Samuel. You're old, man. Your sons are evil. And, and so what are we going to do? Who are we going to look to? Because, you know, we can't, we can't look to you as, as God of our life anymore. Well, I'll tell you what let's do. Let, let, let's find a king. Second point, if you're taking notes, is that Samuel placed his faith in the Father. These guys placed their faith right in the flesh. But Samuel placed his faith in the Father. And that's important because, you know, here's the thing. What we read there in verse 6, well, let's just read the verse. Verse 6, it says, But the thing, them begging Samuel to, to, to make them a king, to appoint for them a king, this thing <clears throat> displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Here's what I want you to see. Samuel, in this place, he has really a very similar temptation to trust in the flesh here, right? That, that word displeased there in verse 6 is, is a really interesting word. It means to tremble or quiver. What it means is that they made Samuel so mad that he was shaking. You ever been there? 
If somebody ever make you so mad that you're shaking, I had somebody cut me off on the freeway one time when all my kids were in the car. I was shaking. Not because this, because usually I get mad when people cut you off because it's like that was my space and you took it kind of thing. No, I was shaking this time because this guy almost killed my family. And, and, and have you ever been there? You're in a place where you're so angry, you're shaking. I mean, I, I think about Luke chapter 9. And, and Jesus, he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And, and so what he does is he, is he sends his disciples ahead of him into all the places where he's about to go to, to ready them to, to receive the Lord as he's on his way to Jerusalem. Well, one of the Samaritan towns uh, won't receive Jesus because he's on his way to Jerusalem. And the Samaritans hated the Jews and the Jews hated the Samaritans and so on. And, and so they wouldn't receive Jesus. And it made uh, James and John so angry that they wanted to call down fire on, on the people. And, uh, and so, you know, hold that thought. They're so angry they want to call down fire on the people. We'll come right back to that. But think about now Samuel. He's in this place. And here are these guys. They are, he's, I mean, you've got to understand, this is at the end of the guy's life. He spent his whole life dealing with a bunch of knuckleheads that constantly are worshiping idols. And, and let's get the ark. It'll save us. And, and all of this stuff. And, and so he gives his life to telling these guys, would you just repent? Would you just turn to the Lord? And so on. And now here we are back again, same group of people. And they're like, well, you ain't getting it done anymore, Samuel. We can't trust in your kids, so appoint us a king. And he's like, they're so in the flesh. I'm so frustrated. I'm so angry. And, and the irony is that the temptation for Samuel here is for him to get in the flesh, Right? And that, and that happens. We get angry or something and we can get in the flesh. And, and living your life in the flesh, the flesh doesn't pr- produce the righteousness of God. It doesn't produce the righteousness that God wants in our lives. And so for Samuel, this is a, this is a huge lesson for him and it's a huge lesson for us. That conversely, where these guys placed their faith in the flesh, Samuel pa- placed his faith in the Father. And so even though he's shaking angry, what does he do with it? He prayed to the Lord. He prayed to the Lord. He's going to place his faith in the Father, and he's going to pray to the Lord. Now, let me just ask you, what do you need to, what do you need to prayerfully commit to the Lord today? What's going on in your life? Maybe some issue that it just has you shaken. And, and, and I would just say, you know, you, you're right here on this razor's edge. You can trust in the flesh, or, or you can trust in the Spirit. And how are you going to get there? Well, you need to pray to the Lord. And so he prays and he places his faith in the Father. Now, as I say that, let me go back to, to the story about James and John. They're angry. They're upset. They go to the Lord. They're like, hey, what do you want us to do? Call down fire on these people? Want us to smoke these people? God? And here's what the Lord said to them, James, uh, Luke 9, 55 and 56. He said, but, but he, Jesus, turned and rebuked them. And he says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. Did you catch that? Basically, what's happening is James and John are responding in the flesh. And Jesus is saying, look, I came to save these people. They're rejecting me. And you guys are responding in the flesh where you want them dead. That is not my heart, and you're not in the spirit. You're so completely in the flesh. You need to be aware of that. Now, just as Jesus described to his disciples the heart of the Father, 
in this, saying, look, you don't understand, you guys are in the flesh, and you don't get it, man, because I didn't come to destroy man's life, I came to save him. So we see his, his heart reflected there. In, in the exact same way, we see the, heart, the father's heart reflected here in these next verses. Uh, Samuel's upset, he's shaking, he prays to the Lord, verse 7, and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day which I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, this is where we see the heart of God coming out. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Look, they're asking for an earthly king. You need to show them what they're getting themselves into. You need to show them so that they go in with their eyes wide open here what what it is they're really asking for. So Samuel, verse 10, told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. Now, the following verses, we're going to hear all the things that God told Samuel to say when he said, hey, you need to warn them. Well, now Samuel's going to share with all the people. Verse 11, and he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own. Chariots, uh, appoint them for, for his own chariots and, and to be his horsemen and some will run before his chariots. So he's going to take your son and he's going to make them, you know, he, they're going to have to staff his chariots and run before his chariots. He's going to take them, verse 12. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and he will give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants, and he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys, and he will put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. You will cry out in that day because of your king that you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Listen, here's the heart of the Lord. The people are in the flesh. Samuel goes to the Lord. He says, look, I could get in the flesh. I don't want to get in the flesh. I want to pray to you. God's like, look, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And what God does, and it's the heart of the Father, is he tries to warn them. This is my third point. He tries to warn them, but they refuse to listen. See, here's the thing. you got a choice. You can trust in the flesh, or you can put your faith in the Father. You can trust in the flesh, you can put your faith in the Father, and here's the deal. When you decide, I'm going to trust in the flesh, God, because he loves you, he's going to warn you. And you have a choice. Are you going to listen or are you going to reject what God has to say to you? Now, I want you to notice what he says there in verse 9. He says, heed their voice, but warn them. That's what he says. He goes, heed their voice, but I want you to warn them. Heed their voice, but warn them. What's going on here? God's saying, look, I'm not going to force them. I'm not going to force them to do anything. You know, they, you listen to what they say and, and, and all, 
but just, you know, warn them so that they can, they, they can use their free will to make the decision that, that they need to make on their own, that they're, that they're going to make on their own, that I've given them the freedom to make on their own. Are they going to trust in, by faith? Are they going to trust in their flesh? And because I love them, I'm going to warn them. Turn to the left. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're headed for verse 11. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Here's the Lord speaking to his people. God has spoken to Moses. Moses is going to talk to his people. And he says, for this commandment, which I command you today... Is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over to the sea for us and and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, God isn't leaving it ambiguous or mystery. He's going to spell it out for you. He's going to say, look, here it is. This is my heart. This is my mind. This is my will for you. What's it going to be, man? And he's going to bring you to a place where you know good and well what the deal is. But he's not going to force it on you. Verse 15, he says, see, I set before you today life and death, life and good, death and evil. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, and you're drawn away and you worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish, and you shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan To go in and possess, I call, verse 19, heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days And that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. The heart of God is, he says, look, I love you, and you have a choice. You can choose between the flesh, you can choose between the Father. One's a walk of the flesh, one's a walk of sight. It's what you can taste, and what you can handle, and what you can, you know, pencil out on your own. What you can figure, for control freaks, faith is hard. It is, because we want to control everything. And God's like, well, guess what? You're not going to control, and I'm going to bring you to a place where you're in the fog, and you've got to just trust in me. He's faithful to warn us, but the choice is yours. So back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the Lord warns them. Look, don't, don't do this. Don't trust in kings. He says, choice would be yours, whatever you do, but you've got to understand, kings are takers. 
And over and over again, he talks about, hey, he's going he's to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your food. He's going to take your crops. He's going to take, 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 take. And what we're going to see as we go through this, and, and sometime in, in, in 2020 when we get to 2 Samuel, what, what we'll see there is that David, the king, he, he takes Bathsheba. And it's, and it's starking, stark, it's starking it's, it stands out, it's there, it's like neon light, you know, very stark there, there you go. Uh, in the text, it says he took her. It couldn't be any more graphic than that. God warned him, look, you get a king, he's going to take from you, and there he is, and he sees this chick, and he's like, ah, oh, I'm going to take her. They're like, hey, you know what, she's a married woman, and by the way, her husband is one of your soldiers, Another son that he took. You might want to lay off. David's like, no, I'll take her. Uh-oh, hey, she's pregnant. What are you going to do? Well, you know what? Let's take her husband and let's put him out in battle. Let's remove all the forces from him. What's he do? He takes his life. Kings are takers. You'll see at the end of 2 Samuel, he takes a toll. Uh, takes a poll. He, t- he counts a census of the people. He, God told him, I don't want you to do that. You know, puffed up in pride and, oh, let me count my kingdom and see all that I've got kind of thing. That's the attitude. God's like, don't do that. He takes a census and 70,000 people are stricken dead as a result. Kings are takers. They take, 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 take. You go on and you see David's son Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 4. It's crazy. You read through it. It talks about his daily food requirements. And I would always wondered, why is that in there? And I don't know if this is why it's in there, but it certainly puts an exclamation point on God's warning here to say, look, you want to walk in the flesh and you think it's going to be all of this? It's going to cost you. That's the big idea here. If you walk in the flesh, your flesh says, oh, I can see this. I can engineer this. I can trust this. It's the right way to go. No, it's going to, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. And, and there in 1 Kings chapter 4, it says that the, the daily food requirements for Solomon's court, for his servants, to feed his servants, to feed all of the, the people in his palace, 150 bushels of flour, 300 bushels of meal, 10 oxen, 20 cattle, 100 sheep, plus on top of all this, deer, gazelles, and poultry. And this is every day for his kingdom. And so what God is saying here is he goes, look, I know that you guys, you can see, you can taste, you can handle, you look at other kingdoms and you, of the world, other world systems, they got kings, and you think in your flesh you're going to engineer this thing, and it's going to be good. And he says, you don't realize how much it's going to cost you. As if I have to make the application. Some of us here today, you're wavering in a, in a situation, you're vacillating in a situation right now between faith and flesh. And you have to, you have to answer the question, am I going to engineer what I can see according to my, what I, my flesh? I'm going to place faith in the Father here. What, what, what's it going to be? The temptation is to, to do with what you can engineer, but it always costs you more. So God warns the people, but what happens Well, they refuse to listen. Look at verse 19. It says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
Point number four, my last point, I'll make it quick. God gave them what they asked for. God gave them what they asked for. Look at verses 21 and 22. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And so the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go his own way, go to his own home, go to his own city. Point is, God gave them what they asked for. And the point of application as we close today is for you. Are you going to get to the place in your life where you're going to demand that God give you what you ask for? Or are you going to let go of the demands of your flesh? And are you, by faith, going to trust what the Lord has for you? It's that simple. And that one decision in your life will mean the huge difference between a high price tag of what you pay for because of the trusting in your flesh versus trusting in God by faith. So the question for us today as we close in prayer, as we come to the communion table, are you walking by the flesh or are you walking by faith?